Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors are Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, those Agriculture Department agency relocations continue to throw off lessons learned. Plus, big bucks up for grabs for those who can make buildings more energy efficient. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, a web-based tool from the Department of Veterans Affairs is connecting veterans experiencing homelessness with services more quickly. VA's Status Query and Response System, or SQUARES, gives shelters and food banks the ability to verify a veteran's identity and eligibility for VA benefits. SQUARES also helped the VA permanently house more than 40,000 veterans experiencing homelessness in 2022, exceeding its goal for the year. For a closer look at this, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Communications Director for Homeless Programs at the Veterans Health Administration, Sean Liu. Ending veteran homelessness is and remains a top priority for this administration. Simply put, the words homeless veteran really shouldn't even exist in our nation's vocabulary. So we at VA are committed to uh, making sure that every veteran has a safe and stable place to call home, especially in the context of the work that was last year when Secretary McDonough set a goal for us to house 38,000 homeless veterans, which we exceeded, by the way, we actually exceeded it by around 6% housing for 40,400 veterans. One of the things that we know when we do housing surges like the year-long one we did last year was in order to actually get veterans connected to the critical resources so that they can get housed, we have to actually determine the eligibility for the services so that we can get them connected. Here in VA's homeless programs, our eligibility is a little bit broader. We have a little bit more statutory flexibility to work with veterans who may have bad conduct discharges, may have discharged early and didn't do their kind of full contract time. Understanding that all of that, those different nuances about eligibility, especially for those veterans who otherwise aren't eligible for the full range of healthcare benefits, can be confusing. And that's where Squares comes in. It's a tool that is used predominantly by our VA funded grantees and contractors. So organizations, traditionally nonprofit organizations, awarding grants for them to provide services. They're the primary users of Squares, and it helps them to, as they have veterans knocking on their doors, calling up their phones, to make a determination quickly with just a small set of information based from the veteran to determine what they're eligible for and how they can get them connected to services. So it's a really, really important tool that makes that front door, that initial engagement, so much more efficient. Okay, great. Those are all great goals, but can you maybe help me better understand how the Squares tool enables just that verification of a person experiencing homelessness, their veteran status? Give me a, an example of how in the field that might be used and put into practice. Absolutely. So say, for example, if you were a nonprofit organization and you provided services uh, funded through VA grants to veterans experiencing and homelessness and housing instability, and I walked up to your door and said, hey, I'm a veteran and I need some help, but I don't have my discharge papers. I don't have any ID. I don't have anything like that. Can you still help me? What Squares allows you to do is based off of a little bit of information that I would provide you. Obviously, my name date of birth, social security number, branch of service, you would be able to go onto the Squares website. It's a web-based tool. Just type in the information that I provided for you, 
And within minutes, Squares would actually report back what my eligibility status for and what specific programs you could then refer to me, either the program that you as a grantee are operating or some of the other programs and services that VA has to offer. And again, it's basically, I don't have to have my VA card. I don't have to have my DD-214. I just have to tell you as a provider, just those core bits of information. You enter it into the web-based square tool. And most importantly, it is confidential. It's secure. We make sure we take veterans' uh, private information and security very, very seriously. And within minutes, it will give you back a result about my eligibility so that you can get me connected to either your services or other services that VA has. Obviously, Squares has been around for a while now. It's been around since, I think, 2015. Help me better understand the evolution of Squares since that time, what new capabilities or features have gone online since that initial launch, and what does the future hold for Squares? Squares went through a major revision in 2019, the current version that is now, we basically call it Squares 2.0. And it had a lot of really important new features. The first was making things easier for users, again, our VA-funded contractors, but often grantees, but also other homeless service stakeholders and other service providers who may encounter veterans and need to know quickly how to best connect them to the right resources. So it streamlines the onboarding and registration process for those new users. It also adds a really important feature. In the first version, you searched for one veteran at a time. In Squares 2.0, you can still do that, but you have advanced searches and most importantly, bulk searches as well. So if there were many veterans tens, dozens of veterans that you are working with and you need it instead of typing them one at a time, one at a time, and one time, you could simply upload a spreadsheet with all of the core bits of information. And again, within minutes, it will provide the result for all of those veterans on that list, what they're eligible for and what best to get them connected with. And then last, we added on some extra technical support features as well, help, uh, help files, tutorials, and a help desk to make sure that as users who are utilizing the system, they don't need to be experts in databases or web-based things. They need to be experts in homeless services, so providing them with technical support as well. When we're looking ahead, what we're obviously looking to do is, based off of user feedback, continue to refine, iterate, and improve the system, make it more responsive, more user-friendly for them. And one of the things that is helpful to know is that we do regular user testing with the Squares website. We're getting key stakeholders to provide feedback on an ongoing basis and use those to make little tweaks and adjustments over time. The name of the game here seems to really be Squares as a tool to help VA make better use of the data it already has, as well as for this community more broadly. How is Squares a great example of that data-driven decision-making and unlocking the full power of data at VA? So I would offer maybe a subtle uh, recontextualization of this. I think what this is really about is data for increasing access to services, which is so important for us at VA. We can have all of these programs and services, but if veterans can't get access to them in a fast way, we're doing them a disservice. And I think one of the things that things people need to remember is that the experience of homelessness can be traumatic. It can have, especially for unsheltered homelessness where veterans are out exposed to the elements, it can have detrimental health impacts as well. So increasing, speeding up their ability to get access to services is so important. And this is what Squares does, is it draws in information from not only VA databases, but other Department of Defense databases and puts it in a helpful web-based tool so that it can make the access to those services quicker since a veteran is not 
waiting to you know apply and get their discharge papers or waiting for other uh, documents to come in the mail. Just by providing some core bits of information, they're able to get access to service within minutes. Tell me a little bit more about how you guys see this as a prime case study and example for other agencies to learn from. We think of uh, our Square's customers in two main categories, ones that I've been talking about a lot already, homeless service providers, again, often VA-funded grantees who we have a relationship with and they are providing services to homeless veterans, but also the veterans themselves that those providers are caring for. So a big part of improving customer service for those two customers is just making things easier, helping our providers access the information they need so that they can help veterans faster. And thus, the veterans get access to the services faster is critically important. Also, not only in speed, but reliability as well, that they can be confident in the information that is provided by the database so that the veterans can just get right onto it. Again, homelessness is a very traumatic experience. It has negative impacts on the health. It actually impacts the whole person, mind, body, and soul. So the faster that we're able to get these veterans off the street and into safe and stable housing is critical. That was Sean Liu, Communications Director for Homeless Programs at the Veterans Health Administration, speaking with Federal News Network story Heckman. You can find more about this story on our website. Head to federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still to come on Federal News Network, big bucks up for grabs for those who can make buildings more energy efficient. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. More than $22 million in cash prizes are available to teams with the best ideas to accelerate widespread equitable energy efficiency and building electrification upgrades. The Energy Department's Buildings Upgrade Prize, or Buildings Up, is asking teams to submit innovative concepts to increase building energy upgrades with a nod towards equity or innovation. To learn more about the contest, I had the chance to speak with its prize administrator, Holly Carr. The Buildings Upgrade Prize, or Buildings Up, was really designed to respond to the fact that about 35% of our country's greenhouse gas emissions are coming from buildings, from existing buildings. So if we're going to reduce our emissions in any significant way, we really need to address existing buildings and try to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions. And we have the technologies to do it, but for a variety of reasons, we are still only seeing about 1% to 2% of existing buildings being upgraded with energy upgrades every year. And we've got about 125 million of these buildings. And that's simply not fast enough. So, you know, obviously it's easier to do these sort of upgrades when a new building is being constructed. What sorts of upgrades uh, are there that can cut down on greenhouse gas emissions from buildings? Yes. So for existing buildings, and this prize is completely focused on upgrading existing buildings. And some of the most important things that we can do in existing buildings are to upgrade heating and cooling systems. So both heating and air conditioning and also hot water. So that means transitioning over to heat pumps and heat pump water heaters. And the great thing about heat pumps is that in addition to providing efficient heating capacity. They also serve as air conditioning or can serve that purpose. So sometimes buildings get air conditioning kind of as a bonus with upgrading to a heat pump. 
Gotcha. And so this contest isn't necessarily about finding new ideas necessarily. It's just enacting some conservation techniques that may already be there and maybe also adding on some new techniques or what's the idea? That's exactly right. This prize is really not a technology focused prize at its heart. It's really meant to address these non-technical barriers to getting these upgrades done in buildings across the country at scale. So we've got the technologies. We've got the heat pumps. We've got the heat pump water heaters. We know how to insulate buildings. Um, We know how to do air sealing to make sure that they're comfortable. But um, still, we are not getting the level of um, energy upgrades that we need in buildings to meet our greenhouse gas reduction goals. So this is really about addressing the financial, the social, the educational barriers um, and other kinds of barriers to getting these upgrades done at scale. I see. So you're just trying to add maybe a little bit more incentive there for companies to address their building concerns. That's right. And with the recent Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law, we've had these pieces of legislation come on board that have provided additional funding for these upgrades. So they're more affordable than ever. We, but we still need to address these, these non-technical challenges and even remaining financial challenges to making these upgrades really no-brainers for the American public. Gotcha. And so how will this contest work? Are you just going to go, I imagine you're not going to go building to building. Is it going to be realty companies that are going to be uh, able to submit or how's this going to work? So we are looking for 20 to 60 multi-stakeholder teams that will be uh, winners in this phase one of the prize. We do anticipate the prize to consist of about four phases over about five years. So this very first phase is the concept phase, and we're looking for 20 to 60 uh, multi-stakeholder teams. We're really open to what those teams look like. They might consist of, you're right, building owners, local governments, tribal governments, state and uh, municipal governments, nonprofit organizations, for-profits, We're really open to what those teams look like. Um, We especially hope that the teams will include community-based organizations. Um, And we have a really strong focus in this prize on making sure that these upgrades happen in what we're calling equity-eligible buildings. So low and moderate income buildings and communities, disadvantaged business buildings. So we have a strong focus for the prize in those areas. There are two pathways that teams can uh, choose from to submit a concept plan. They can choose the equity-centered innovation pathway, which is really focused on um, teams that are committing to complete the majority of their upgrades in equity-eligible buildings, in those low and moderate income homes, in those disadvantaged business uh, buildings, et cetera. And Teams that make that commitment to focus their upgrade initiatives there will receive $400,000 in prize funding, as well as access to a whole ecosystem of technical assistance to help them take their concept to an executable uh, implementation plan in about 12 months. The second pathway that teams can choose from is the open innovation pathway. So um, teams... Uh, following that pathway, they're certainly welcome to address uh, equity eligible buildings in their concept plan, but they're not required to. So those teams choose a building type or a geographic area or both where they want to complete upgrades and they create a concept plan for how they're going to really scale those upgrades in that building upgrade zone. 
So you weren't kidding. This isn't a technology focused contest like the energy department usually runs. This is this is public policy stuff. This is for political science majors like myself, potentially. (laughs) (laughs) It is much more focused, as I said, on those non-technical barriers. We've got the tech. We just need to get it in buildings now. And where does this contest stand in the Department of Energies? You mentioned the equity in technology focused areas like this. And where does this stand in the Department of Energy's overall mission and goals pertaining to the Biden administration's directives? I would say Buildings Up is just right smack in the middle of our mission, specifically in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Our mission includes accelerating the deployment of technologies and solutions that equitably transition America to net zero greenhouse gas emissions economy wide. And that is exactly what we're trying to do here, um, particularly in the uh, equity centered pathway to make sure that folks are not left behind in this transition to clean energy and being able to use that um, clean electricity that is increasingly uh, available on our grid, thanks to solar and, and wind primarily. And I got a little ahead of myself there. Uh, how will the groups that submit entries be judged in this contest? How will you determine who has the best plan? Yeah, so folks can actually go right now to HeroX.com slash Buildings Up. And that's that's really the nexus for this prize and where all the information is. The rules, the official rules document is located there. And um, that the application will also be available for folks to submit their concept plans will be available on that website February 18th. So teams can access that application. There are four or five narratives that teams will complete depending on which pathway they're choosing to pursue. So teams respond to those four or five narratives. They're fairly short narratives of about 500 words each. And that collection of narratives constitutes their concept plan. So we will have a group of reviewers here at at DOE and some partner organizations that will review each of those applications, read through those narratives and score them on a very specific um, set of questions. And so combined with um, those scores and potentially interviews that we may do with some teams, we'll make decisions on those 20 to 60 winning teams that will be a part of the cohort that will move forward in the Buildings Upgrade Prize. And will you be among the reviewers or are you just dishing out the prize money? (laughs) I, for this first phase, I will be a part of the review team. Yes. But I do want to mention that we are really looking for in this prize new voices and new faces who perhaps have not participated in DOE funding opportunities in the past. The reason we, we chose a prize structure in large part is that it is simpler for participants to participate in. It's uh, There's not as much paperwork involved. It's a little more straightforward than some of our other funding vehicles. And we really do want to see new faces and new organizations um, submitting applications to participate in this prize. So if applying for DOE funding seems a little daunting, we actually have an application support bonus prize available that is open right now. This is a prize of and 10 hours of technical assistance for new and under-resourced teams that would like to try to submit a phase one application. 
So we'll provide some some cash and some uh, technical assistance to help folks think about their phase one application and get that put together and submitted. Holly Carr is with the Energy Department's Building Technologies Office. To hear this interview and learn more about the contest, you can head to federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Still to come on Federal News Network, some bank failure takeaways for feds worried about their own investments. But first, those agriculture department agency relocations continue to throw off lessons learned. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. When the Trump administration moved two small agencies of the Agriculture Department to Kansas City, Missouri, it lit a storm of opposition. The agencies have more or less settled down, still in Kansas City, but the move remains an object of study. Now the Government Accountability Office has laid out what it calls leading practices for relos. The GAO's Director of Natural Resources and Environment, Steve Morris, joined Federal News Network's Tom Temin with more. And you issued a report just kind of reiterating aimed at Agriculture Department on what the leading, if not best, practices are for relocations. But this could have been aimed really across the government, I would say. Yeah, I mean, any time that the agency is uh, in the process of relocation, you know, that would be a subject of potentially a subject of our review, Tom, you're right. But in this case, we did look at specifically at USDA and their relocation of a couple of their research agencies, uh, namely ERS and NIFA. Right. And you said that they didn't totally ignore what are good practices for relocation or reorganizing agencies, but they didn't follow all of the best practices or all of the leading practices. What are a couple of things, just to be positive, that they did right? So, Tom, yeah, let me give you a little bit of context in terms of what we looked at. I think it's going to kind of frame the issue here. But, you know, we were asked to take a look at USDA's relocation of of ERS and NIFA to their research agencies. And one of the key points we found is that, you know, there was a pretty significant impact in terms of its people and its productivity. So following the, the 2019 relocation, you mentioned that the agencies were fairly small, and they were. They had about 300 people each. But about a year and a half in, they ended up losing about half of their staff. Coinciding with the loss of staff, uh, ERS's productivity uh, really declined. You know, they produced a lot fewer reports. You know, NIFA was also impacted. You know, they took a lot longer to process the grants that they're responsible for. So significant impacts in terms of people and products. The good news is by the end of 2021, the agencies had rebounded, both in terms of staff numbers and also in terms of productivity. So they were pretty much about where they were before the relocation. A couple of significant changes, though, worth mentioning. The composition of their staff changed dramatically. So prior to the relocation where you had the majority of, of staff in both agencies with more than two years experience, for example, a couple of years after the relocation, that pretty much switched. So in NIFA's case, um, you know, you had maybe about a quarter of the folks with two years of more experience and ERS, maybe about a third of their staff. So there was a, a very significant change in terms of the experience level of folks working at those agencies. Similarly, we saw a pretty drastic change in terms of the the ethnic composition of the staff. 
Uh, just to give you an example, Tom, so in terms of African-American staff at NIFA, prior to the relocation, almost half of their staff were African-American. When we looked at it a couple of years later, that percentage was less than 20%. And it was fairly similar at uh, ERS as well. So pretty dramatic changes in terms of the uh, experience level of staff and also the composition of their staff in terms of ethnicity. Coupled with the change in experience, you would probably expect to see this, but the percentage of folks uh, working at both agencies who are aged 40 or over also declined. So you had a much younger staff at both agencies as well. So that was something we wanted definitely to highlight uh, the impact on people and products. And that kind of leads us to that next issue you brought up about leading practices. We're speaking with Steve Morris, Director of Natural Resources and Environment at the Government Accountability Office. So a couple of factors they didn't really maybe count on or some effects that they didn't anticipate, which gets to the practices that they should have followed. Tell us more about those. Yeah, absolutely. We assessed the agency's actions against what we consider leading practices anytime a department goes through any sort of reform things that they need to consider. And also, you know, practices they need to consider from a human capital perspective, right? You know, what if there's changes in composition, for example, how do you deal with that? So, you know, we took a look at the agency's uh, actions uh, and compared that to some of those leading practices. And, you know, in some cases, to USDA's credit, they did follow those actions. For example, the department did have and develop certain goals for the move, right? You know, one of the key ones was to recruit and uh, retain highly qualified folks, for example. So that's something that was stated, right? Part of the problem is that they didn't really have performance measures to kind of gauge their progress, right? So did they actually follow through on on some of the goals they had initially? You know, one of the things we pointed out that we thought was very significant is that, you know, anytime you do these sorts of reorganizations, you want to get people to buy in, right? The folks who are going to be most affected. In this case, it would be the staff working for the agencies. And and USDA, you know, kind of dropped the ball on that in terms of getting their input and buy-in for the move, which kind of hampered their efforts moving forward. You know, one thing we pointed out is, you know, if they would have queried their staff, they probably would have had a better sense of how many folks were actually going to make the move or not, right? And that would have informed the decisions as to, you know, some of the future uh, actions that we're going to take. So just an example of some of the things that USDA missed and um, things that we think they should do better in the future. Yeah, you don't want to take your people kicking and screaming with their heels dug in, even though you may have that legal authority. It's still not a good practice because you're not going to get the hearts. Only the bodies will go, but the hearts and minds may not be there. Exactly, Tom. And on the issue of racial diversity of the workforce, that's a tough one because you have to rehire. As you say, a lot of people left and they had to replace almost half their people in both cases. And you don't have quotas in the federal government, but yet you also want diversity. And how can agencies best approach that question? Well, that's a, it's a great question, Tom. And I think part of it is just kind of assessing where you are, right? The makeup of the staff for both agencies was very diverse before the relocation. And that's something that should have been considered moving forward in terms of hiring practices, et cetera, right? And it goes back to that first issue about just having a better understanding of what your people are planning to do in terms of the move that could have helped inform, you know, some of those plans moving forward in terms of, you know, who, what, where, and the hire. So that, that becomes an issue and something that the agencies really did not focus on. That in one of the key practices, you know, we cite is having, you know, a diversity sort of management plan, right? Kind of thinking through these issues. And both agencies in this case didn't have that. So that creates challenges for them moving forward and 
again, from our perspective, implementing some of those practices is going to help them with some of the ongoing challenges and, and also maybe could help them in the future if there is a, an additional relocation of agencies. And your recommendations, there's about eight of them, a long list, went to a different administration than the one that had initiated this change, yet they're still all open and the Biden administration has stated its commitment to empowering the federal workforce. So briefly, just give us the tone of the recommendations and what you expect from agriculture now that they have them. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Well, you know, as you mentioned, we did make eight recommendations, and and these kind of follow what I was mentioning about, you know, leading practices for reform and, and human capital management. The good news here is that USDA agreed with the recommendations, so that's great. We have buy-in from the agency. They also noted their commitment to uh, address these recommendations in the future. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. Uh, again, we just issued this report a few months back, and USDA is on board, so you know, we'll keep checking to see how uh, the agency is doing in terms of implementation. Steve Morris is Director of Natural Resources and Environment at the Government Accountability Office, speaking there with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive when you relocate yourself. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, some bank failure takeaways for feds worried about their own investments. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Bank stocks might look like dicey propositions these days. There's nothing to focus investors' minds like the possibility of a run on the banks. It's not 2008, though, and we probably won't see the failure of hundreds of banks like we did back then. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got more from certified investment planner Art Stein. Art, actually, before we get to the whole banking question and what investors should be worried about right now, which seems to be about everything, I wanted to ask you, here we are with a quarter of the calendar 2023 behind us, maybe review some of the returns in the TSP funds and the markets generally so far. Yeah, well, the returns have been very good so far this year and year to date, which means, you know, from the beginning of the year through yesterday, all the funds are up. The G fund's up 0.8%, F fund's up 2%, C fund a little less than 4 S fund 2%, high fund 3%, and the L income fund is up 1.5%. So it's been a very good year. Now, since this problem happened with the Silicon Valley Bank, which really was March 9th and 10th, then we see that the stock funds are actually down. But taking that into account, since the beginning of the year, the stock funds are still up and, you know, had a good quarter. So what's an investor going to do? To begin with, they need to look at, you know, what do they actually have at risk? And, of course, government employees and retirees have this great set of guarantees that no one else has, and they really don't need to worry as much. I mean, if you're a federal employee, it's not like you work in the private sector like we've been reading how even major companies like Amazon and Google, et cetera, have been laying off thousands of employees. Well, the government doesn't work that way. And actually, you know, if you have a bank run, there are a lot of government people that will be working much harder. Federal retirees, again, are in a much better situation. They have a federal annuity that's guaranteed. That's their pension. 
and FERS retirees also have Social Security, which is actually guaranteed. Both of those have cost of living adjustments. You know, they've got their health insurance. So they should be in a much more secure situation. Now, in terms of their actual investments, for the C and the S fund, which are the stock funds, how much do they own of the banks that have been affected so far? So of the banks that have been affected so far, the Silicon Valley Bank was in the S fund, as was First Republic, I guess, at the end of 2022. But I think that they were switched to the S&P 500 index, not by the TSP, but by the people that run these indexes. You know, it's not a TSP decision. They're just using indexes and those investments are managed by BlackRock and some other companies. So there's no immediate concern. Now, if we had massive bank runs in the United States, you know, that's obviously going to kill the stock market. And I'm not quite sure what it's going to do to the bond market because there might be a flight to safety and bonds might look good to a lot of investors. But I don't see that happening because one, Silicon Valley Bank was a really unusual situation. They clearly didn't manage their investments very well, and it didn't match up with their liabilities. There are a few other problems, but even they could have survived if there hadn't been what we call a bank run. And a bank run is when people just start pulling their money out of the bank, even though they may not have to. Silicon Valley Bank, such a large percentage of their deposits were not insured. And that's not true of most other banks. I've read that as much as 90% of the value of the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank were not insured because they were over the FDIC limit. And in a typical bank, that's closer to 20 or 30%. We're speaking with certified financial planner Art Stein. So the question is, getting back to, say, some of the TSP funds that might have had these in them as part of the you know index funds, if they are such a small percentage of these index funds, what's the mechanism by which something occurring at Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of the others, European banks, affect the stock market so much? Well, because, one, they are part of the stock market. And, you know, clearly their stock values have gone down. So to the extent that those bank stocks are held by the C and the S fund, there's one effect. But also, you know, these type of bank failures are seen as bad for the economy. So people tend to sell stocks when they happen. And that affects the entire stock market. And do you sense that there's maybe a almost an underlying anxiety these days because people are looking at Social Security, seeing the Congress's refusal to even consider anything substantive to try to extend the solvency of that fund, of the, of the Social Security. And the same thing is true of Medicare, really, for that matter, is also unsustainable. And if you look at the trends in health care spending by the federal government, and then you look at interest rates, and then we hear all these warnings about how much of the federal budget will have to be devoted to paying the service on the national debt, and you add that all up, it's almost like the couple of bank failures are the straw that's breaking the camel's back in a lot of people's minds. I think it's way too soon to talk about breaking the camel's back. And remember, with Medicare and Social Security, the government can just print the money to pay the bills. And everybody expects that. I expect that. I don't think any senator or congressman is really going to let those programs go bankrupt. They're not going to want to be around if they were part of voting against the money needed to continue those payments. I mean, 
there are just way too many people dependent upon that. But if the government is just printing more and more money to pay those and they haven't made any other reforms, you know, you expect that to be inflationary. And, you know, we've seen inflation go up a lot. And then the question you would want to ask is, well, if we expect inflation to remain high, you know, because of the deficits in the Social Security Trust Fund and the Medicare Trust Fund and things like that, how does that affect our investment strategy for long-term and short-term investors? And high inflation reduces the purchasing power of the bond funds, F and G, and long-term, you would expect it to increase the value of stocks because companies can charge more. And historically, when inflation has hit, you know, long-term stock prices and dividends have adjusted. Right. So you've got this situation then, I guess what I meant when I said the straw breaking the camel's back, I meant from an investor flight or sell standpoint, not from the government going to collapse. But people see the trends and they see the size of the debt relative to GDP, and it's going to be bigger than GDP in a short while. I think at some point that dawns on people that, yes, it can print money, but is that what we want the nation to be doing in perpetuity, is printing money at the levels it has been for, say, the past five years? You know, Tom, I think that, you know, individual investors, what they need to do is to have clear and appropriate investment goals to have a suitable allocation between the stock and the bond funds and for their outside investments between stock investments and bond investments. And then they just need to maintain perspective and a long-term view and long-term discipline. And that to me, you know, as an investment manager means when stock prices go way down, we buy more. And if bond prices go way down, we buy more bond funds. You know, you want to be a little counter-cyclical. And historically, that would have given you a much higher rate of return. And for anybody trying to understand these things and then to invest accordingly, it's very important to understand the difference between stocks and bonds and how that affects your investments. But if you really want to get into it, then you need to understand things that, you know, only really sophisticated bond traders do. I think that people should look at the historic returns and really what that means historically is that stock funds over long periods of time outperform the bond funds by a significant amount and that difference was high enough to make putting up with the greater volatility of the stock funds worthwhile because they you know they tended to have a much higher rate of return not every year maybe not every five years, and in a few cases, not even every 10 years. But the bond funds, very unlikely to maintain purchasing power after we take into account taxes and inflation. So if you're putting your you know, long-term money in something that's losing purchasing power, that's a problem. So now is not the time to lose your nerve. Well, I don't think it's ever a time to lose your nerve, but I would say have an appropriate investment goal. If you're retired and you need money in the short term from your investments, it should be invested in bank accounts and short-term bond funds. For the money that you're going to need in 10, 20, and 30 years, you need to have that heavily weighted towards the stock funds. Certified financial planner Art Stein will post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Keep the Federal Drive in your portfolio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
A first look at the latest best places to work in the federal government list is out today. The Partnership for Public Service and the Boston Consulting Group unveiled the top 10 large, midsize, and small agencies for the 2022 annual rankings. The number one spot for large agencies probably won't come as a surprise, but many agencies are continuing to see a decline in their overall employee engagement and satisfaction scores. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, how are you? I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So who were some of the top agencies on the lists? So for large agencies, as you said, it's not a big surprise. NASA is number one again. This is the 11th year in a row that they've taken that gold trophy spot. Following them, we have the Department of Health and Human Services, the intelligence community, and the Department of Commerce. So a lot of these top 10 agencies, at least for the large agencies, are actually the same as they were for 2021. So there's not much movement within the actual rankings, despite some of those scores, as you said, are on the decline. For mid-sized agencies, picture is relatively similar. The Government Accountability Office and the National Science Foundation, they maintained the top two spots. And one agency that actually fell out of the top 10 was the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Then looking for small agencies, the Congressional Budget Office, they're actually new to the rankings this year, and they took the number one spot for small agencies. So where was there some movement specifically, which agencies improved significantly since last year's rankings? One agency that did see a really noticeable improvement from 2021 was the Small Business Administration. They did really well this year. They increased their employee engagement and satisfaction score by 5.9 points. They That comes only second to the Office of General Counsel, which is an agency subcomponent of the Education Department. But the SBA was, you know, that that score is very significant for them. They also moved up 10 slots in the rankings. They were in 16th place last year, and now they're up to sixth place for 2022. Other than them, there's also the Department of Energy. They moved from 14th place last year up to the top 10 in eighth spot this year. And their index score for employee engagement and satisfaction was one of those few that was increasing as well. In terms of large agencies, the departments of Air Force and Transportation, they were the only two out of all of those top 10 to increase their scores. So we have been seeing this trend of, you know, despite some of these agencies maintaining their role in the top 10 rankings, they are on a bit of a decline for engagement and satisfaction. And again, a lot of this information comes from the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. Yeah, which agencies in the top 10 had the biggest drops in satisfaction scores? Right. So on the other end of this, there are some agencies that didn't do so well. So even though the lists are pretty similar from 2021, that's the bigger takeaway here. There's these scores on a downward trend. So for example, you know, we talked about closer to the top that NASA is ranked number one for large agencies, but their score is continuing on this kind of downward trend. So they had an 84.3 satisfaction score for 2022, and that's a slight drop from 85.1 in 2021 and then 86.6 the year before. And out of those top 10 large agencies, The Department of Commerce ranked fourth overall. They had the steepest drop in their score, a more than three-point decline. So 
the, you know, there is this this trend for a lot of these agencies just kind of going down. Things are still very much in flux post-pandemic when it's related to the federal workforce. What might be some of those reasons behind these declining scores from last year? Eric, I do think you are alluding to something that is pretty significant here for a lot of federal employees. That is a factor that can be really influential. This time of flux for federal agencies, there's a lot of questions about return to office, about hybrid work, about the future of work. And are employees going to be able to continue teleworking and working remotely, or are they going to be asked to come come back into the office more often? That's something that is still a big question. And I think that you know, may be a factor that's influencing some of these declining scores. But it is hard to pinpoint at the same time. There's other things that can go into this as well. The Office of Personnel Management, which manages the FEVs survey every year, they said that some other factors that can really influence how employees feel in terms of engagement and satisfaction can be how they perceive their immediate supervisors. These are the people that they interact with every day on the management level. Also, how they see recognition of a job well done are their managers recognizing when they are doing well. And also the feeling of, you know, is your agency really listening to you and making changes based on your input? Those are a couple of questions from FEBS that really do drive some of these differences in engagement and satisfaction. We're speaking with Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman. So how does the partnership calculate these scores? What's their methodology? So it is based on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, as I said, but it's not just taking the overall FEBS score for each agency. They actually look at just a few specific questions from FEBS every year. The first is, I recommend my organization as a good place to work. How satisfied are you with your job? And then how satisfied are you with your organization? So Basically, the partnership takes those three questions, uses some analysis on the back end, on their end to determine, okay, how do how does each agency compare to one another? And that's how they determine the rankings and create their own sort of engagement and satisfaction score for every agency. What are you hearing from federal leaders who are analyzing this list and what are their most important takeaways? So something that is pretty interesting is... You know, several chief human capital officers from NASA over the years have said that it's not, you know, they are the top spot. They're the number one spot yet again, but it's not always about how they rank within the best places to work list from the partnership. It's more about looking at internal improvements. That's really the key takeaway here. It's looking at how does your individual score for engagement and satisfaction really change over the years. So NASA, more than a decade ago, their engagement and satisfaction scores were low. They weren't where they are now. And that's something where these Chicos over time, several of them have kind of taken different approaches to pinpointing areas of FEVs where maybe employees were feeling less satisfied or the scores were a little bit worse, and then trying to make improvements around that. Obviously, in that case, they've seen it pay off. So that's kind of NASA's take and what they recommend to other agencies who might be looking to improve in the rankings. All right. And this was just a first look. When can we expect more details from the partnership uh, as far as the analysis of this list goes? Right. So this is just a top 10 for each category. The full list and 
a lot more context from the partnership, a lot more analysis from them will come out on April 12th. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. I'm sure we'll be talking with you again once we do get the full list. You can find her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Drew, thanks a lot. Thanks, Eric. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. 